0: Welcome to The Road Back to You.
1: Looking at life through the lens of the Enneagram, I'm Suzanne Stabile.
0: And I'm Ian Cron.
1: And we're so glad that you're listening today.
0: Everybody, this is Ian Morgan Cron. Welcome to the road back to you. I'm sitting right now next to the very beautiful, inimitable, brilliant, compassionate, and kind Suzanne Stabile. Good morning. Good morning. That was lovely. I thought it was good.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm sitting next to the creative, smart, neurotic. Uh, ran a few miles this morning. Yes. Aging Ian Cron. Oh. Did you
0: just say aging? Yeah, Sa- no, you to- said saging. I did. You said saging. Yeah, I did. That's what you said, right? Mm-hmm. You told me this morning on good What was it, What did you watch this morning? That-
1: good Morning America from my hotel room. I found out that being a morning person or a night person is genetic, like it's in your DNA. You can't just change that. Right. So, I'm and a night person.
0: You're a night person and I'm a morning person. Right. And so right now, you're you're what are you functioning at? 30, 40, 50, 60? Where are you going to be right now? Because it's, it's morning.
1: Yeah, I've been up a long time. I'm functioning about 65 or 70, but I'll right. be really interesting and charming tonight.
0: Oh, you will? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll try and, I'm trying, tonight I'll probably be asleep by, yeah. by seven. Um, but right now, I'm not going to be asleep because we've got a great guest on
1: our show today. We do, and I'm real excited about it. We
0: spoke at the Why Christian Conference this year. Right. Right. On the Enneagram. We had an Enneagram Day uh, before the start of the Why Christian Conference conference, uh, which we loved. We did. And we have one of last year's speakers, Mihi Courts, on the show today, an Enneagram 7, an enthusiast. And uh, we have a special affection for enthusiasts since we both have children who are enthusiasts. Mihi uh, is a Presbyterian pastor. She's a mom of three. She's a hope monger, I'm told. Uh, among many other things. And uh, she's lived all over the country. She's a graduate of the University of Colorado at Boulder, where my beautiful daughter, Maddie, went. So I'm well familiar with them all. And she is a delight as a human being.
1: You know, I think it's an understatement to say that she's the mother of three when she's the mother of twins and a three-year-old. That's Five-year-old twins and a three-year-old is way more than being the mother of three.
0: Right. So she's she's something more of a hero. That's than. right. Okay. Well, let's get you. Good morning, Mihi. We're glad you're
2: here. Good morning. It's so fun to be with you all.
0: Well, we're delighted that you're willing to be part of our our family um, on the road back to you. You're a seven on the Enneagram. And uh, tell us about—wait, just a, how, tell us first how you learned about the Enneagram and then We'll ask you a little bit about what it's like to inhabit the life of a seven.
2: Yeah, okay, so I still feel like I'm a, a noob when it comes to the Enneagram. Um, I really had heard about it maybe in the last two, at the most three years. Actually, it was from a brilliant and inspiring Native scholar and activist. Her name is Andrea Smith. She's a professor at the University of California in Riverside. She has an MDiv and a JD, a PhD. She's just, her writing is brilliant. And she really believes that. One of the keys, maybe the key to ending global oppression, is the Enneagram. What? <laughs> so that, yeah. That's What's her name? What's her
0: name? Tell me her name <laughs> again. need to get
2: her on. Andrea Smith. I'm a really big fan of hers, and a lot of people are really big fan of hers as well.
0: Okay, that kills me. Um,
2: yeah, yeah. So, of course, I mean, that's sort of a, uh, you know, that kind of a... Uh, recommendation, <laughs> um, I felt like I, I should get to know what this system is. So, you know, I did the the usual like online perusing, um, picked up a couple of books, uh, uh, took a couple of tests. And initially I thought that I was a two. And so, you know, three years ago I'm in the throes of, you know, we had twins that were two. I had just had a baby. Uh, I don't know if there's something about being a mother and being a helper. And there were, there were, there was just that mindset. I feel like, um, and maybe in some ways I was answering the questions, uh, only from that, uh, from that space of being a mother and a helper, um, and being full-time at home. And then I started to take the test again and reading the descriptions a little bit more, uh, reading some more books and resources and realized, um, that I'm a seven. And I took, uh, the longer version of the, the test, um, I don't know when it was, a couple of months ago, and uh, then the higher number came out uh, to seven, and I uh, I kept on. I, you know, there were some surfacey things that I felt like really resonated in terms of. I have a friend who also is seven, and, he, and she describes it as getting really excited about a lot of ideas, but never knowing where my keys are. And there I thought you know. that's exactly, that's exactly who I am. Um, but there was a piece about pain that I felt like didn't totally resonate. Um, but I had sort of a breakthrough, uh, a couple of weeks ago reading the road back to you and realizing that a lot of my aversion to admitting that I'm a seven, um, or totally claiming that for myself, um, is that, uh, I think that I have a really high high threshold for pain. I've always always sort of held that up as uh, as something really important to my identity for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, maybe as a sign of strength, that kind of thing, um, and independence. Um, but then I realized actually, it's not really a a, a high tolerance for pain. It's just a really uh, a high proclivity towards oh. Like completely avoiding pain as much as possible, um and that, for some reason, just really it made me realize okay there's there's something here about avoiding pain that um is is really key to my past and to who I am right now
1: mm. great that's all that's all really good things for sevens to hear so um tell us what you're passionate about
2: right now, I'm really passionate about my children, about trying to be a good mother and a good parent, Um, trying to be supportive to uh, my husband, who's also a Presbyterian minister. Um, It's really hard to be in a clergy couple and try to juggle two vocations and two callings. And uh, the timing doesn't always work out um, in in such a way that we're both able to fulfill uh, sort of this full-time call to ministry. Um, I am doing some part-time work as uh, director for the campus ministry in town. Uh, that's part of the Presbyterian denomination, uh, but it's very different from what I expected it would be, um, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago. I didn't imagine that I would be at this place, but it's given me some space to do a lot of reflecting and writing and uh, thinking and learning and researching um, around topics like, uh, racial and gender justice, um, uh, LGBT inclusion, a lot of, uh, the campus ministry I do. We do, um, a lot of gatherings with, uh, our ecumenical partners. Um, we try to do a lot of interreligious projects and, and do a lot of more connecting and, and reaching out, um, so that we're not just this insular community. Um, and, I don't know. I just get really excited about a lot of things.
0: Well that 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 would that would be symptomatic. Yeah, that's very uh, symptomatic. We we call our, our seven Tigger. Yeah.
2: He just <laughs> he
0: just gets up in the morning and every day is a snow day.
2: Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know he's
0: yeah. a he's a yeah. sevens. Honestly, are the number I would most like to be on the enneagram. Actually, a healthy seven. Uh, which is what, my, my, and I'm I'm as far away from a, a healthy seven as you can get, really, <laughs> but but my son is, and so the we have a he and I have such a wonderful relationship because of of that. Um, so here's a I'm gonna jump in on a mom question. We've had yeah. a couple of sevens, uh, Sean and Equus was on, and and uh, uh, others who have said that for being being a seven has been a particular challenge for them as moms, and the reason is routine. Um, that whole, um, sort of aversion to having to do the same thing over and over again, the love for doing new things. Um, has that been your experience or, or has that been not, you know, a feature of your life as a mom?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that because my husband, um, which I don't know what he is, I'm guessing he's a six, but I mean, again, I have have no reason. I mean, I have a couple of reasons, but, um, no reason in terms of being an expert at all. Um but so he craves routine. He loves routine. He needs it. Mm -hmm. And, um, so that rubs off, off on me a little bit and I can see how routine is helpful to the kids. And so I try really hard to be consistent in terms of, um, you know, trying to do the same things every day, but it never works out. So, you know, we'll pick up the kids. Um, I'll pick up the kids after school and, um, We just go with whatever, you know, the weather is, what they're feeling, their energy level. We may go straight to a playground. We may go to the library afterwards. I never want to come home. (laughs) That's (laughs) so great. That is so.
0: There's so much to Uh, see. There's so much to do.
2: (laughs) There is. There is. And so, and you know, I just know that as soon as we come home, um, the temptation is to turn on Netflix and let them watch, um, you know, three hours of wild Crops right. <laughs> or right. The Octonauts is, is sort of their, uh, their poison right now. Um, and I don't, I don't find, uh, I don't know. It just makes me feel horribly guilty when I have them doing that. And, and they, we do do that. There are many days that we actually do do that. Um, but we try to stay out for as long as possible. Um, and I don't know, I do feel, On the other side, a little bit of guilt for that because then I think maybe they want to come home. Maybe they need a place uh, to rest and to find sort of refuge, to decompress. Uh, Maybe they do need a little bit of TV time. Um, But uh, that's a good uh, question. I personally, yeah, I personally just feel like for my sanity, I can't go straight home from picking them up because I know that just being cooped up in the house, it's a lot of screaming, a lot of chasing, a lot of negotiating. But if we're outside, I don't know. It's just a different feeling once you put kids outside.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm married to a United Methodist pastor, and we're itinerant, so we're essentially appointed one year at a time, although we've been in ministry a long time, and, and we have much longer appointments now. Um, but I run into lots of clergy couples, and um, I, I find it uniquely um, curious that— We're all called to something, but we sometimes have to alternate how we're going to answer the call because of the person that we're sharing life with, right? Um, Have you ever pastored a church? Do you want to do that, or do you want your ministry to be more like what you're doing? I I understand you're really good with college kids. Do you kind of want to hang with that? As a seven, what do you think the church offers you as a place where your gifts and graces really fit?
2: Yeah. That's a great question. Um, I have worked in two churches before I moved to Bloomington. We moved here for Andy's call. Um so he's the pastor at First Presbyterian Church downtown. And um, when he was uh, sort of entertaining uh, the thought of moving on from his last church, I was pregnant with a twins. I don't know why we were thinking it was a good time to interview at churches at that <laughs> time, but uh, um, I was working full-time as an associate pastor at a church, um, you know, doing mostly youth ministry and Christian education, uh, but had been there for about five years, and that was, you know, I was feeling like I was getting to a sort of a sweet spot. Um, it, it didn't feel uh, like I was having to think so much about but, the work, um, you know, I was really sort of living into it a lot more Uh instinctively. But um, and this is something that we've discovered in uh, marriage, in marital counseling in the last couple of years is that I I instinctively feel like I need to make him happy. And so a lot of the decisions I make um, are, are to put his, to make sure that there's some sort of guarantee uh, when it comes to his happiness, because I feel like I can deal because I have that high threshold for pain. Right.
1: Because you're a seven, too, that the making somebody happy would be really important to you.
0: Yeah, all yeah. sevens want other people to be sevens.
1: Well, I tell you what I think. I think sevens have a very difficult time being in a lifelong relationship with somebody who they can't make happy. Right. It's like if they can't make enough adjustments and be spontaneous enough to make someone else happy, then that becomes a very... Trying relationships, so it sounds like it's more intuitive you for you, Mihi, that hmm. you want to do it from the front side, not looking back and thinking, "Oh, I, how can I make you happy?" It's um, it's very interesting. I hear that from a lot of sevens who are in relationships with non sevens about, mm-hmm. I, "I want to do whatever we need to do for you to be happy
0: and, and for me to be happy." It, I mean, well, honestly,
1: I think that's the, the the whole thing, so that I don't have to deal with any kind of pain ongoing. Right?
2: Oh, wow! Yeah.
1: You know one, yeah, of the
0: the wow. en- yeah, one of the things the yeah one of the things does is uh, as a spiritual formation tool of course is it not only reveals what's best about us but also that side of us that you know yeah, is needs a little work. Needs yeah as uh, I thought I think it was not the Dalai Lama I can't remember but he used to say remember you're perfect you just need a little work.
1: Yeah there you go. <laughs> just an adjustment. Just
0: just a little work. Um so one of those for the seven is that need to keep the environment atmospherically happy, you know, and optimistic and sunny. So sure, we can sort of at times. I mean, fours do it their way, twos do it their way, but you know, we we can sometimes serve up what we're doing as being serving the other when when actually there's another piece to it, which is this is also a little right. self interested. Right. Right. So mm.
1: another question I have for you that um, that this may be very self serving. Like I wish we were having coffee somewhere, and it was you Mm. and me, but you're there and I'm here, so I'm going to do it this way. (laughs) Okay. I read in your bio that you uh, made a shift from traditional evangelicalism to progressive evangelicalism, and I'd I'd like for you to teach me about that. um, I've been United Methodist most of my life. I spent 10 years in the Catholic Church, which I'm very grateful for, but for lots of reasons ended up back in the United Methodist Church. And I'm um, particularly sensitive right now to a lot of language in the culture about the difference in a traditional evangelical and a progressive evangelical. And I I would love to hear you tell me about that transition for you. And then the follow-up question from me would be, do you think that had anything to do with the fact that you're a seven?
2: Hmm. That's great. Oh, goodness. Uh, I forgot that's in my bio. I feel like I should strike it. <laughs> Um, I, I grew up in a Korean Presbyterian church. It was an immigrant church. Uh, so that means that it was mostly Korean speaking. That was the first generation, my parents' generation, uh, the second generation, which was my generation, the descendants, you know, we spoke mostly English, um, you know, hodgepodge of Korean and English, um, with our families and with our parents, with the older generation. Um, but a lot of my faith development happened in communities like Young Life, Uh, fellowship for Christian athletes. When I went to college, I got really involved with Young Life again, Um, you know, attended different communities. Uh, You know, there was a social aspect to it. I really enjoyed being a part of uh, the different flavors of these faith communities. Navigators had their sort of own vibe. Campus Crusade for Christ definitely had their own vibe. And Young Life was sort of the place that I felt really rooted. And then I joined an Asian-American Christian fellowship group, which I felt like because it had that specific uh, uh, characteristic of being Asian-American, it fed me in a lot of ways that I felt like the other groups did not. And uh, so it felt like a lot of my identity at the time, even though I was still Presbyterian, Considering going to seminary towards late college, I still identified as more evangelical. But then I went to seminary, and I went to Princeton, which is very Presbyterian and very mainline. I uh, I sort of tried to discard that evangelicalism um, because it was very narrow in terms of ideas about authority, about the Bible and how we read the Bible about certain social issues, about the roles of women in leadership and in the community. So I let that go. But I did find and discover that there were more progressive evangelical groups that were a lot more social justice oriented, Mm -hmm. so that the gospel wasn't just about uh, salvation and a ticket to heaven, but that it was lived out in the here and now, uh, that we live out God's kingdom in the here and now. And then that gospel made a difference in flesh and blood realities as opposed to, oh, this is your ticket to heaven as long as you memorize a bunch of Bible verses and um, that sort of thing. So, uh, But then I I kept, you know, because I was going through the process to become ordained as a minister in the Presbyterian Church, uh, I felt like my identity was shifting more towards uh, a mainline kind of identity um, and more of a Reformed theology. And that, um, I think I still struggle with that, honestly. Um, and it it kind of harkens, I mean, I'm thinking a little bit about that question you just asked me a few minutes ago about, you know, what is it like to be in a church and be a seven? Is there space for me to be a seven? And I think there are times where there are not because the institutional structures are just, are so rigid. And so, um, you know, there are a lot of sort of bureaucratic loopholes you've got to jump through to become a minister um and there's a the joke about and i know this happens in the methodist church but anytime there's a new project or a new idea you have to do a study you need a task force oh, you yeah. need a committee yeah. you need all sorts of permissions and that doesn't bode well for me because i mean, i enjoy reflective processes and conversations but to go through these processes just to check them off right um
1: you, as a oh. seven, you would be too impatient for that. Yeah. yeah
2: very impatient. Totally. Yeah. Very impatient. It's like very a creative. Yeah. The yeah.
1: creativity has gone. The energy has gone. The, the spontaneity is gone. gone. All right. the juice oh, is yeah. gone. Yeah.
2: That is the biggest, it can be the biggest killjoy to try to fill out, you know, like a 20-page grant application, <laughs> you know, right. Right. So that is, a, you might or might
0: not get. This is an amazing point. Like, I was just thinking about two things as you were speaking that we ought to talk about one day, if not today, which is type and theology. Right. Right? Like about type and theology, uh, type and ecclesiology. Right. Uh, and um, uh, also about how it is that the church total and, and total, sum total, as it develops leaders, needs to take type into
1: account. Absolutely.
0: You know, uh, I'm an Episcopal priest, and I always say, we're training managers. We, we attract and train managers. Because you got to go to seminary for three years, it could take five years to be ordained. No seven in their right mind that would go out and start a church and go. They're going to say, "Forget it, I'm going to go out there in the world and just do it myself Absolutely. now without seminary." Absolutely. I don't, you know. So we got to <laughs> we got to have different tracks for different types.
1: We do, and we and we've got to have an opportunity in the church to recognize different gifts and different types. So, uh, me, I'm 66, and um, I'm a two, which sounds so sweet and soft and lovely. <laughs> but I'm very feisty I'm a non-traditional pastor's wife and that's challenging it's challenging not to for, not to fit the prescribed role yeah. and since I'm a 2 one would think that I could fall right into that role but I'm not I'm no more comfortable there than I would be if I was a 7 or an 8 or a 9 because the expectations are too narrow for me, and you talked about the path being narrow, uh, yeah. you know, and about a widening in the path. What would your dream be for um, a young, Korean born, really bright, really capable woman? in the Presbyterian church or in any church for that matter? what If you could just say, this is my dream job and this is what I would really love to do and this is how I could use my gifts the best, what would that look like?
2: Goodness. Um, I mean, I I would love to start a church, but yeah. there's a part of me that also would love to help other people start churches. <laughs> you know, like yes. there's so many folks that have these ideas, um, these really creative and incredible, um, incredibly thoughtful and really provocative ideas about being church, and I would love to, um, yeah, I would love to be a part of that. I love being a part of things that are exciting and new oh, and, right. um, and break break forth. <laughs> Bang on right seven. The
0: <laughs> so that's um. Let's just tell our folks a little bit about more about sevens for those who aren't as familiar. Um, sevens are in the head or fear triad, which is often. Uh, a surprise for people because, you know, sevens don't look fearful or actually uh, in their head at all. I mean, Aiden, my son, is very affectionate and feels like he's really coming from from the heart. Um, Fives uh, deal with fear. Their fear management system is to retreat into the life of the mind. Sixes with pessimism and sevens with optimism as a way to fend off pain and, uh, of fear, any kinds of afflictive, uh, emotions, right? Let's, let's go, let's go have fun kids. We got to get out of here, you know? Uh, and I'm wondering just to ask maybe a more personal question for you is how do you deal with pain,
2: mm.
0: emotional pain? Like when it comes, what's that like for you?
2: Oh goodness. Um, well, and this was another thing I, I, for a long time thought, I I don't have an addictive personality at all. Like my brother, um, he's a couple of years younger than me. You know, he took up smoking, took up, you know, drinking regularly, that kind of thing. And I just, I don't do those kind of things, but then I realized there are other addictions (laughs) that are possible. And, um, you know, when I was in college, uh, you know, I was was in, in, in some really tough relationships um, where I felt like I just was not loved as myself. And um, I became bulimic. So uh, that would have been my junior year in college. And it was, uh, you know, I can still remember the first moment he had said something really horrible and emotionally abusive. And my way of dealing with it was stuffing as as, as much food as possible into my body so that I could just you know, not feel whatever I was feeling and then regurgitate it Mm -hmm. because that felt like I was dispelling. That was a way of dispelling the emotions. Um, you know, so I always feel like with any kind of addiction, um, you know, I'm always going to be in some kind of recovery, even if I'm not symptomatic. Um, there are other ways that I stuff myself, you know, to avoid feeling any kind of pain or any conflict. Um, that is really uh, good
1: insight, really, uh, really, really, really good. Do you know anything about um about where the numbers go in stress and security? H- have you read anything about that or studied yeah, I that just at all?
2: Uh, just from your book um, and a little bit on uh, on the website, but um. But I guess if I'm, um, if I'm thriving, I'm going towards a one. And some of that is still very confusing to me. So I'd love to hear you all talk about it.
1: Actually, uh, as a seven, you move toward one when you're stressed. Oh, okay. And it's very interesting that you were talking about the time when you were uh, dealing with being bulimic because that's a, a very interesting one kind of control thing. So, you know, there is a way that you're participating in something that you have control over in terms of taking in and expelling food. And I, I, think, um, I think one of the things that I want to communicate about sevens while I'm talking to one uh, so that our listeners can hear from you and from me is the reality that I think we fail to check up on sevens. And I don't mean that in an, an authoritarian or a policing kind of way. But I I think we believe that sevens don't need an emotional check-in. I think we live in the idea that sevens don't need us to just call and say, hey, how are you doing? How's life? Are you, are you doing good? Do you want to go out and have dinner? Do you want to do something? It's almost like our view of sevens is that they're they've got all this stuff going on and they don't need the rest of us. Do you ever feel that way? Do you have anything to say about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's why I thought it was a two for a while because I was so focused on other people's emotions and happiness. Right. And then um, it would always be sort of jarring if somebody did ask me what was right. going on that I, I didn't really know how to answer. Um,
0: yeah, that's that's true for my my son as well. I. He he has a lot of trouble because you 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 are head people you know and so when I get down to the realm of emotion mm-hmm. with him um, you know I'm, we're in murkier murkier water can can I just circle back because I think this is related to um, something that would help our folks um, we uh, in in the book uh, I discovered along the way and wrote about the psychiatrist Gabor Mate who wrote the book in the realm of hungry ghosts he, he's a, really an addiction. Guy and as pastors, if you're out there pastors, if you want to understand addictions, this is one of the one of the better books. But you know, sevens, um, as I as we say in the book, I think have a sort of a real proclivity toward addiction um, because actually, and, I, and bulimia as a as a as a condition itself is is actually kind of a metaphor for the life of a seven, which is trying to uh, to really fill themselves, to overfill right. themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, as, a, as a sort of as a metaphor for the life of a seven, every seven has a bit of a, of an eating disorder for experiences, stimulating ideas huh. to, to try and jam as many pleasurable activities into any given moment uh, to there's a chronic deprivation at the core of a seven, a feeling of chronic deprivation that of emptiness that has to be filled. Um, Susan, would you would you Say
1: that's been your experience, too? It has been, and I also have a son who's a seven. And The thing that's coming to mind for me right now is I think it's Clarence Thompson. That may be wrong, and if it is, I'm sorry. But I think he is the person, the Enneagram person who said that seven's great desire is to be satisfied Mm -hmm. in the old sense of the term, you know, just to be satisfied, but they settle for more. Mm. Wow,
0: that's a great line.
1: And I, I think it's true that sevens are kind of trying to deal with their way of seeing the world by filling themselves up with as many positive experiences as they can. Mm. But there is a, there's a limit to what that can offer you as a seven. And so then they just settle for more. I, mm. I um, do, do you have any response to that or?
2: Yeah. Wow. I mean, I think that that at so many levels, you know, really does fit perfectly with with who I am in terms of, um, I mean, just, you know, you know, the bulimia, the constant signing up for and overcommitting to way too much during the week. Mm. I always say, I wish that there were two more days in the week, just two more days and I would get a little bit more done. But then I know that I would overfill those days and still be caught in this cycle Mm. of just more, more, you know,
1: Mm -hmm. what does contentment look like for you?
2: Oh goodness. Um,
1: it's an interesting word for me to throw out there because we don't use that word anymore. Mm-hmm. People are just not content, it seems
2: right, yeah, I mean, just with the the day to day if you know if the kids are not screaming at each other <laughs> and fighting over something right. and they eat all their dinner <laughs> and they bathe themselves and put on their own pajamas um. And I am able to, you know, maybe write something meaningful, read a couple of, see, it's already too much. It's already just, I'm listing all this and I feel like there's not enough hours and not enough like me to go around to accomplish all that. I need like 10 more me's to accomplish and experience all those things. Um,
1: you know, good Enneagram language is that the best part of you and the worst part of you are the same thing. Hmm. And so all of the things that you just said are the best part of you but they also keep you from the best part of you in a way you know the, like as a two the best part of me is that i'm generous and giving and all that but the worst part of me is the exact same thing hmm. and i think finding space for um it's very interesting to be married to men who have to be on call all the time yeah. it's like they're never ours right. we we can yeah. never count on them for a whole night or it's a tricky space, isn't it?-
2: mm-hmm. Hey I me, mean, I've. Yeah.
1: Uh, wow. we, one of the things I love, or, or I mean, sometimes it just
0: amazes me more than love with my son, um, who I, as you know, I adore. but uh, one of the hallmark features of Sevens is they're the most amazing spin doctors, or what we call reframers in the world. <laughs> uh, they, hmm. they always have a pocket full of silver linings. And, you know, pastors, part of what a pastor does is try to, I mean, try to enter into the space of people's suffering to, to, to walk beside them. Uh, and, um, but when I mean reframing, uh, for, the, for those not familiar with sevens is, you know, a seven can go into any negative situation, painful situation, and just in a moment on the spot, turn it on its head and turn it into a positive because they don't want to deal with the pain of the moment. Mm. so, you know, if you, if you hit a car out in the parking lot, you'd be like, oh, you know, this is really great because I'm learning uh, how to deal with, you know, uh, sudden crisis. That's a bad example. But you know what <laughs> I mean. This is really
1: great because I want a new car.
0: Yeah, or I want a new car. <laughs> and so I'm going to go right from here to the, the – instead of saying this really sucks, I was at fault, I feel bad, I can't afford it. Etc. Right, right. I don't want those feelings, so I'm going to make it a good thing. So I can look at you, or you're you're on our screen right now. I see a nod in your head. You're doing <laughs> all that. Tell me, tell me if that sounds like you a little bit.
2: Yeah, yeah. Which which is funny though, because I feel like if I hear other people that do that all the time, then I'm like completely annoyed by it. So then I think, oh my god, I'm I must be completely obnoxious. Especially, I mean, you know, it comes up the most in conversations with my husband, which we're starting again to learn. Um, his tendency is to automatically vent about anything and everything, just whatever comes to his mind. As soon as he comes home, first thing in the morning, he just starts it. And I, we have talked about how he needs to tell me and preface that because I'm not always ready for that. But as soon as he says something, instead of saying probably what he needs to hear, which is, you know, I'm sorry that you're feeling that way. I'm sorry that's happening. I try to spin it around and and make it seem more positive or try to make him change his perspective so that he sees what's positive about that or find something positive in that, which is, yeah, gotta be God awful for him (laughs) Um, first thing in the morning. But I mean, that's something that we struggle with, um, in our marriage, uh, interaction and just sort of the everyday it's just that constant, like I have to change the narrative for him all the time. And he's just like, I just need you to hear me and say that I'm, you know, I'm with you in that, and that I'm suffering with you in that instead of trying to fix him or fix that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, one of the most powerful things about the Enneagram is it illuminates, you know, what's happening below the waterline, you know, it it, it 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 takes a flashlight into the, into the shadows and reveals yeah. the underlying motivation that most of us are, are just not in touch with that's driving so many of our thoughts, our feelings and behaviors. And then what it does is it brings uh, this gift to relationships, you know, so you're really describing a gift. I mean, when you know this is the dynamic, right, yeah. you can step into his life in a way that, you know, is helpful to him. And as you grow in self-awareness, you're able to say to yourself, or he can say to you what I have to say to my son in, in moments of pain, which is like, you need, I, I'm not comparing you to a puppy, but I do with my son. I say, you know, stay, don't run away, stay, stay with the pain, stay. And, and uh, uh, that's sort of a joke around our house, you know. And, but I, I just love that you're, you're, you're really just describing the blessing of self-knowledge. In the spiritual life and relational life.
1: Mihi, I think um I think sevens have particular gifts for dealing with social justice. Um I I think there's a time uh, on the Enneagram sevens are aggressive numbers along with threes and eights. And I I think there is an element of being able to reframe. So this would be the positive side of reframing that comes with um, immersing oneself in a social issue, a social justice issue, and being able to, to have an ideal of where we could move to or what we could do if only. And I think sevens bring that to the table better than almost anybody. Knowing that you're interested in social justice, do you, does that ring true to you? And Um, Have you experienced that, that you can deal with people where they are, but at the same time, hold what it could be and not let go of that?
2: Hmm. I mean, I think I feel the most excited and alive when I'm trying to engage that, you know, when there is, um, you know, what's been happening in the country for the last week and, you know, in some ways I feel sort of paralyzed by it, but when I can write about it and write about it in a way that is theological and meaningful and about who God really is about, um, you know, and, and, and still be sort of challenging. Um, then I feel more like, okay, this, this is who I am. This is what I want to be doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, and then showing up to things like, you know, there are a lot of, we live in a university town. Um, so there are a lot of, you know, student groups that are involved with, um, you know, stopping Islamophobia and, uh, standing in solidarity with, uh, the Standing Rock community and, um, you know, everything from Black Lives Matter. I mean, those are the places where I feel like You know, when I show up and, you know, sometimes I'm asked to speak on behalf of or as a representative of the clergy community um, or as a campus ministry community, then I feel like, you know, there's something um, really anchoring about it. I feel Mm -hmm. like, um, you know, I'm scattered in so many different directions, you know, 23 hours a day. um, But those moments feel... um, just really powerful and affirming. Yeah. And yeah, it's almost so, like there's room
1: for your sevenness there. Mm. Right? Is, is that correct? That it doesn't have to be curbed in any way. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah, know, I like that.
0: One of the things that characterizes a, a seven in health is they go to five. Mm-hmm. And in five, they start to um, stop consuming and start contributing, is what we, we say in the book. And uh, they're just a little bit more comfortable with silence and solitude. And they become more serious, you know. And I think that's what you're describing in part. And something they really have trouble doing as in the, when they're younger is they begin to think about the meaning and larger purpose of life.
1: Yeah, but once they think about it, oh boy. man!
0: And that's what I heard you speaking about. You know, as you talk about social justice and 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 just jumping into that that into that realm, I think that's a um, a wonderful description of what a what a healthy seven uh, looks like. You know
1: he, I've thought about a lot uh, what it would be like for me to be on our podcast. And I think at the end of every conversation, if I were you, I would want to say, okay, this is what's really important to me. And I <laughs> want people to know that we could do A, B, or C. Is there anything you'd like to say that's really important to you that you think um, our listeners could hear and use in some way to make the world a better place?
2: Mm. I think that we're living in a time where, um, we need some, some healthy optimism. Um, I think, you know, that's, that's something that, um, again, Annie and I struggle with. I always joke that he's a pessimist and that I'm the optimist. Mm-hmm. And he always says that he's being practical and realistic oh, and I'm being naive. Six. <laughs> so good. Yeah. So six. <laughs> um, yeah. But I think that we need some folks that are dreamers, you know, ones that are aren't afraid to to dream those bigger dreams. And um, I, I I will be one of the first ones to criticize or be critical of, uh, you know, anybody being sort of uh, tone deaf or blind about um, racial issues, about gender issues. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to. I don't want people to be stripped of their bigger visions for community and being together and, you know, what love does, uh, when it's allowed to flourish in communities. Um, I, I love like Desmond Tutu, we named our firstborn, uh, the boy twin after Desmond Tutu, his name's Desmond. Um, and you know, a lot of the things that he says, I feel like always resonates. Mm -hmm. He's the happy Bishop, you know, the smiling Bishop, um, and he grew up in the worst of South African apartheid, and he still has this incredible, compelling vision about the world, about people, and about humanity. And I don't want to lose that. Yeah. I don't want to, as much as, as people might think I'm being naive or um, superficial even and not digging deep, I, I still want to hold on to yeah. the possibility of peace and joy and hope right. and and that that we can live that out yeah That's we need so
0: that good. we need that in this world, and just in closing, by way of encouragement to you, um one of my favorite people in the world, and someone who arguably uh rescued um, the faith in Europe during the Middle Ages, with joy and standing on his head was a seven. St. Francis of Assisi was a seven, we think. We're almost certain he was. I mean, by gosh. And, and <laughs> well, that Richard was Rohr that.
1: is a Franciscan, and he thinks Francis was a seven, well, by so we golly, get to go with that. That's, that's oh, okay. it. So, like if that.
0: anything, we want you to know that you are in good company with St. Francis of Assisi. And if we need anything now in the world and in the church right this moment, that's it's another St. Francis of Assisi. Thanks for being
2: <laughs> on with us. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. It's yeah. so
1: nice to meet you. I hope we're it's in the so nice same spot you.
2: someday. Yes, please. I really would love that. Yeah. I would really love that a lot. So Peace and grace. And good. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: You've been listening to The Road Back to You, looking at life through the lens of the Enneagram, produced by Jim Champy, and our engineer is Brad Bass.
1: Our theme music is provided by the band Waterdeep from their album Moment, written by Lori Chaffer.
0: Please visit our website, theroadbacktoyou.com, for news, more podcasts, and a list of our public appearances around the country.
1: And you can order our book, The Road Back to You, An Enneagram Journey to Self-Discovery, at amazon.com and barnesandnoble.com. Please join us next week. You don't want to miss it.